Welcome to Two Guys in the Bible. My name is Eric Leupold, and I'm joined, as always, by my brother-in-arms and fellow co-host, Dylan Keniston. Good evening, Dylan. How are you? I'm doing well, brother. How are you? I'm doing great, doing great. Just another uh, lovely day. It's like 50-some degrees over here. I know, right? I, so I, I was, you know, I'm cooped up at work all day, so I'm in this office. I had no idea what the temperature was. I step outside, and I'm like, what even, what month is it right now? Like, this is crazy. It is kind of weird. I know, but I, I don't know. I, I was loving it, though. I think uh, some some of the folks from our office we have some we have some bikes some guys bring some bikes in and yeah you know, so sometimes if it's an afternoon where there's not a you know a ton going on they'll take a quick bike ride because we work right by a canal and uh yeah i, I think they totally hit the canal uh, paths this this afternoon cause it was just that beautiful out yeah it's one of those yeah you don't want to pass up a, a, a good day like this uh when you expect weather's not going to really improve uh for a few more months but yeah so a beautiful day and uh, also, uh, it's a, a good time to, to record, as always. We enjoy uh, talking about culture and theology and God's Word uh, here in the podcast. And, of course, going over some of our uh, just a brief administrative items, we are a listener-supported podcast. So you can check out our website at www.twoguysinabible. That's the number two, guysinabible.org. And you can contact us, uh, send us feedback. Um, and, uh, and any kind of ratings as well on iTunes and all of those uh, wonderful things. That's the currency of our modern day is apparently ratings and reviews, and that's more important in some ways than anything else. And, of course, your prayers as always uh, as we try to be faithful to God's Word and to, uh, and to basically help out uh, fellow Christians who are interested in these kinds of topics. And today we are joined by a, uh, a guest uh, Pastor C.R. Wiley. He's with us today. He is a senior contributor to the Imaginative Conservative and a pastor in Manchester, Connecticut. His short stories have appeared in magazines such as The Mythic Circle and Fear and Trembling, and his nonfiction writings have appeared in Touchstone Magazine, Relevant Magazine Online, and Modern Reformation. He is also the author of the book The Household and the War for the Cosmos, and as well as Man of the House, which is the book that we are going to be discussing today on our episode. So uh, good evening, Pastor Wiley. Good to see you. Uh, how are you doing? I'm um, really well, Eric and Dylan. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, we're glad to have you as well and to uh, do this via remotely. I mean, I wish we could do it in person, but uh, praise the Lord for technology that allows us to to do this. Um and the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to have you on today is I, uh, I know that uh, you uh, run a podcast as well called The Theology Podcast, um, which I've subscribed to and been a listener for several months now, and I've always been uh, really blessed by your work. And so I, I would encourage any of our listeners to, to check out The Theology Podca- Podcast uh, there with, uh, with Pastor Wiley. Um, and in fact, uh, through listening to uh, your podcast and talking to uh, fellow uh, friends of mine, I'm, I'm friends with, with Gabe Wrench uh, uh, from Cross Politic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, they were just uh, him and Pastor, uh, Pastor Toby Sumter and, uh, and uh, Chocolate Knox were down here visiting Philadelphia, and I was able to uh, take them onto my military base uh, that where I work and uh, let them fly the simulator. Uh, for a little bit, so that was a that was a fun day uh, with the guys. I, I never got a chance to meet them, but uh, it was good times. But you know, we talked about uh, your book, uh, uh, Man of the House, and the, and the War for the Cosmos as well. And I've only read uh, the Man of the House so far. I do want to want to read the other book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. 
Uh, my wife has that one, and sh uh, so she's really encouraged me to pick that one up next. But uh, with that, uh, I, I just want to first of all ask, you know, if you could give us, uh, give our listeners a brief background, uh, upbringing, and, and really what led you uh, to write this book about uh, household, uh, uh, manhood, uh, and things, things like that. Well, um, yeah, that's a, that's a long story. So if I ramble on, just cut <laughs> me off. By the way, I, I just, I've had this picture in my head of Toby in a simulator. <laughs> that's probably a lot of fun to see. Shout but, uh, yeah, those guys are, those guys at cross politics are great. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, my father was an academic. Uh, he taught at university of Buffalo, uh, and, uh, then later at, uh, Washington U in St. Louis. My mother was uh, a lover of the arts and introduced me to the world of the arts uh, young. We, uh, you know, because we live near college campuses, uh, the world that I, I knew as a kid was kind of bohemian. Uh, a lot of, this was like the late 60s, early 70s. So there was a lot of experimentation, if you, if you recall. Mm. And so uh, my folks were Episcopalian. Uh, but nominal. Um, my mom was more Anglo-Catholic. My father was just disengaged. But uh, they were seekers like everybody, uh, but they were what I call ABC, anything but Christianity kind of mm -hmm. people. And uh, so they got involved in different things. Uh, initially, my father and my mother got into Mormonism for a little bit, didn't stick with that. They were in the Baha'is for a while. And oh, then wow. they ended up in Scientology. So I, I, from about the time I was about five to about 11, uh, I was an unwilling participant in L. Ron Hubbard's little cult. Um, oh my goodness. So that was that stage of my life. And then uh, the family fell apart. My father left us. I ended up back in Western Pennsylvania, where uh, our family was from and where I was born. And it was there that I became a ward of the state, spent a little time in foster care. And at that time, I, I became friends with a preacher's kid he, he became he was my best friend and he wasn't like uh like you know super spiritual or you know he didn't witness to me or anything we, just, we were just friends mm -hmm. and he had to go to church so i went to church because i wanted to hang out with him and while i was uh with him you know i overheard the gospel and over years it sunk in and i and i came to believe um so that's the that's the story of my conversion and Mm -hmm. And that was like my late teen years. This would be, be you know, late seventies and by at this point, early eighties. And, uh, so that, that's, you know, my, uh, childhood and my conversion story, mm -hmm. but the, yeah. uh, in terms of the book and, you know, how that came about uh, man of the house and my interest in, in this, you know, masculinity and, and stuff like that, it's kind of a whole other story. Um, Partly it relates to my upbringing. I mean, I, I uh, have always been uh, kind of uh, concerned for the, the, you know, integrity of households in general, but Christian households in particular. And I was uh, interested in, in understanding at a deeper level than most pop culture Christianity, at, you know, uh, is able to, to, to sort of... Uh, address the subject uh you know most of the stuff that we get you know james dobbs dobson s gary smalley all that kind of stuff it's kind of psychobabble mm -hmm. so I, I was interested in 
more theological, but also a functional and historic understandings of how households work and, uh, or at least used to work before they uh, were, you know, before a lot of the things that we rely on them, used to rely on them for were taken over by other institutions. So um, that got me into the work of people like, you know, Richard Weaver or uh, Robert Nisbet or uh, Alan Carlson. And, and it's a long, uh, there's, there's kind of a long, uh, I guess, uh, genealogy uh, of thought on this, on, on the subject of households and goes all the way back, you know, to the Bible, of course, but also to ancient Greece. And uh, there's a great work by a fellow named Xenophon. It's a Socratic dialogue. And it's entirely on how households function. And so, so my book, Man of the House, you could say is kind of an update uh, or at least a, uh, an attempt to, to take biblical and, uh, and ancient practices with regard to the household and, and uh, see how they could work in the, in the world that we live in today. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, uh, you mentioned so many things there that uh, we could have a whole other podcast on. I mean, that just piques my interest about, you know, your, your experience as a ward of the state and the foster care system and Scientology and things like that. Um, but with regards to household and, and, and manhood and stuff and things like that, uh, I myself uh, grew up in a, in a divorced home uh, from the age of three. Uh, so I, I, you know, it really hits home for me the idea of of being. I want to be a better father. I want to lead my household well. I want to um, set an example for my children, uh, lead my wife well. And so that's why I was particularly interested in what you said in your book about about manhood and about a household. I find that so important, and uh, and I can see, especially in our culture, the the degradation that's taking place there. Um, and so just kind of set it out, you know, kind of set out the problem first for our listeners. What are some of the, you know, and you, you briefly mentioned um, the household being replaced in many ways, but what are some major problems that you see in our American culture, particularly, that this book uh, responds to and and addresses? Well, I think we, we all are familiar with the uh, decadence uh, that surrounds us and uh, the disillusion, you know, meaning in the sense of dis- you know, households as institutions are in, uh, that are they're, they're dissolving because of the acids of our culture. Uh, uh, one of the one of the things that I think um, that is lost on. Uh, just about everybody in the evangelical world is the fact that that households historically served functions Mm. that are now being performed by other institutions in our society. Let me just give you an example, quick one. Mm. So let's take the word economy. The word economy is a a word that today, when we think about it, uh, if we have any institution in mind at all, we think of uh, the nation state or something like that. Yeah where we, we think, okay, the national economy. And when we talk about it, we know we're talking about gross domestic, domestic product or, you know, things like that. Um, but the word itself, oikos nomos, that's, those are the, the two Greek words that the word, the English word economy 
uh, derives from means house law. Hmm. Hmm. Now let that sink in. So an economy literally means the law of the house. And we're not, and we're, when we use the word economy, uh, you know, for these large, you know, uh, institutions, we're actually using it kind of metaphorically, but it's, it's in, in its origin, what a household was, was an economic enterprise that had a, an authority structure and people relied upon households for their living, their livelihoods. So, you know, in the ancient world, actually, you don't even have to go back that far. You can just go back to colonial America. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is watch Little House on the Prairie with <laughs> eyes open. <laughs> yeah. and, and you can see how the world worked up until the Industrial Revolution. When uh, the Industrial Revolution occurred, productive work, productive enterprise, productive property moved out of the house to the workplace. And initially, entire families followed the work. That's why we had women and children working in factories, Hmm. because they had always worked with the father of the house. It was just the way things were done. And so, you know, in in the sort of the pre-industrial age, you know, let's say you worked on a farm. Well, everybody's helping dad uh, Mm -hmm. work the farm, you know, milk the cows, plow the fields, paying, all that kind of stuff. But it also is the case with us tradesmen, you know, smiths or cobblers or, or coopers or whatever, you know, everybody was involved with the enterprise. So a husband and a wife were a team. You could say they were a kind of business partnership. And there was a there was a very sort of clear and sort of commonsensical division of labor. Uh, and the, the wife often would take care of the internal affairs or the internal matters of the household and father was the face of the household to the community and he was the one who was providing uh, leadership in the productive enterprise now when that leaves when that moves out the household is sort of reconceived as companionship and a sort of a place where you go you know after work to relax and to sort of just you know emotionally, you know, sort of bond or whatever. But the problem with that is uh, when you lose, you know, the excuse to be with people uh, or the reason for being with people and, and working with people, uh, you you put too much stress upon the emotional and interpersonal aspects of the relationship and expect too much of them. So there's a paradoxical you know, sort of uh, thing that occurs, the more we rely upon other people to make us happy, in other words, mm-hmm. the less happy we are and the, and the more they let us down. And mm-hmm. the more we just sort of say, hey, we're in this together, we're working together, we're just trying to make a living together, the more we actually find ourselves appreciating the other people that we're working with and, 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 and are working alongside. And we really rely on them and we really need them in, in a very practical way. So because uh, we, don't, we don't think of our households in that way anymore, we could say that they're functionally uh, irrelevant to most people. And that's why, that's the functional reason why people don't form households like they used to. Hmm. Man, that's interesting. I mean, 
And I want to really uh, zoom in on that functionally relevant part um, because I do see a lot of uh, uh, friends, coworkers, uh, uh, people. Really, I mean, there's so many things that go on outside the home, whether it's, of course, work, both parents, school, of course, uh, for those especially who are in the public school system, and then uh, sports and and whether it's you know, music or any other kind of class. And the, the family gets so busy that really, in a lot of ways, I mean, it's, it's both busyness and everything being external, the house just becomes a changing room. It becomes a, a locker room where people just wolf down some food. They don't really even bond together anymore, let alone be productive inside there. So I, I, it definitely hits home, that whole functionality uh, aspect there. Did you have some thoughts, Dylan? Well, yeah. So, so one question that comes to my mind is I'm hearing you articulate this, you know, to in that the household has become kind of functionally irrelevant. And, you know, what I heard you describe earlier is, you know, maybe we're, we might be expecting kind of the emotions or kind of the companionship felt side of marriage to carry more weight than it was, than it was built to carry. So one question that comes to my mind is, um, you know, m- as you are reaching back into the wisdom of scripture and, you know, to some extent, you know, through common grace, even the wisdom of, you know, ancient Greek thought, uh, you know, what is the alternative? I guess maybe if you could help our audience kind of think through, maybe even give us a language for some alternative to companionship, you know, kind of emotional satisfaction in the context of marriage. You know, I, I'm just having a hard time. Like, what would even be the language that, that a listener might use to describe that alternative? I think that might prove helpful. Well, I think that if uh, you have in mind that a household prior to the industrial age was a going concern, a kind of business, uh, you know, that's that doesn't do it justice, but it but it it helps to sort of reframe the conversation. So, you know, today, you know, we have a lot of commiseration about the patriarchy, hmm. and. and that was not something that people complained about once upon a time. In fact, once upon a time, people wanted patriarchs. And the reason they wanted patriarchs is because households did productive things and someone needed to make sure they were working. <laughs> and you needed somebody to protect the interests of the household. So consequently, you needed you needed men who knew how to command respect, not only of people who are in the household, but outside the household, and defend its interests. So, for example, if you read Xenophon's uh, book on households, uh, Economicon is the name of it. Uh, sometimes it's, re- it's translated as the household manager. One of the things that you see the uh, successful householder in that book doing is, is uh, practicing martial arts. And I mean, martial arts not in sort of the oriental sense, but just in the sense of swordsmanship, you know, and and the like. You know, things that because heads of house in the pre-industrial age were the ones who went to war hmm. so so they were the ones who laid their lives on the line to protect the interests of their households and the, and the members members of their household now think about today now today what we have is we have a situation that's so absurd that we have you know women who are, are leaving home to go halfway around the world to serve as i don't know what uh, in regard to the in military industrial complex, mm-hmm. but the entire sort of frame of mind or frame of reference that once was taken as, you know, for granted as common sense has been lost upon us because now there's 
really nothing to the household. And this, by the way, is why we're sliding into socialism. When you, you, you know, what, what ends up happening in a situation like the one we are in now is people always, people always defer to and submit to the, the authorities who uh, they perceive to be, uh, you know, defending their interests and, and helping them survive and live and thrive. People don't think of fathers in those terms anymore. They think about the government doing all that kind of stuff, particularly the federal government. Mm -hmm. So the only way that I, I think that we're going to recover uh, a healthy uh, family life is by recovering the institution of the household. And the only way we're going to prevent sliding into socialism is by recovering the household. Uh, and the way to do that is by uh, acquiring productive property and holding it as a household and that's a whole other conversation oh sure yeah so it sounds like it well it sounds like an answer to the question it's like there's this companionship function but one of the things that it, i'm hearing that you are jealous to recapture is an economic function and a defensive function of the household would that would that be a fair summary yeah i think so i think you know when you lose when you lose the you know those dimensions of the household and there are other dimensions to talk about. There's, the, you know, the spiritual dimension and, mm. and how, uh, you know, the household reflects the divine economy. Mm. And that's what my book, The Household and the Warfare at the Cosmos is about. Mm -hmm. but, but, when, but, but when you lose sight of those things, then basically uh, you lose the justification for uh, submitting to authority in a household, but also you lose sight of other certain basic things in other words a household becomes a kind of recreational institution mm -hmm. and then the conversation goes from what's right or what works to what i like and what makes me happy now people have got all kinds of screwy ideas about what will make them happy <laughs> but when you think of the household in, in purely recreational terms and you're not thinking about it in functional terms then who's to say that a homosexual relationship is wrong? Mm -hmm. You see what I'm getting at? Mm -hmm. Because if you are just simply looking for your personal pleasure, you know, if you're just simply invested in that, then you lose sight of how the next generation uh, relates to, you know, the ongoing interest of your household or even your, you know, what, what you're going to uh, you have to rely on in your old age. You know, in other words, we've, uh, there's so many things that were common sense to our ancestors that are just completely alien to us today. Mm -hmm. I love that you were talking about like a spiritual component too. Like I, I just love that. So one of the quotes that really jumped out at me in your book, like I, I'm like underlining this is like, so you have a chapter on piety uh, and you say, quote, our houses are what they are because they are in some small way, tiny replicas of the cosmos itself. And I'm like, Boom, right? Then that must be like, you know, kind of giving some foresight into the household yeah. and the war for the cosmos, right? Uh -huh. It's like, here's kind of the setup is is right there in the chapter on piety. But but so, and I, and I love that. And so that brings me then to another question, which is, okay, so then if all that is true and our, and our households are in some ways these tiny replicas of the cosmos, what is the foundation, right? So like in, in the first book, in the first part of your book, you talk about a household is established through marriage, right? So I guess one question that comes to mind is, you know, why marriage? Why is that the foundation? And then 
in addition to that, how can we kind of as Christian men do a better job kind of defending and supporting and advocating for biblical marriage? Or, you know, maybe, you know, where has the, you know, where have we maybe misstepped in these areas? One of the problems that we face in our society is uh, we, we tend to reduce everything to the individual and, and his or her choices. Hmm. Uh, we're not really uh, uh, willing to deal with the fact that there are pre-established uh, frameworks that we didn't choose but that we're born into and they impress themselves upon us and we don't have a right to change so hmm. i'll give an example of how uh, i'm a pastor so when people come to me and they say they want to you know sort of make up their own marriage vows i say unitarians are down the street if you want one, a marriage like that so-called marriage they'll do whatever you want but we have traditional marriage vows because this is not about just you hmm. This is about an institution that's been established by God and handed down to us through time and memorial. And when we, we are there to observe you taking your vows, there are a number of things that are going on. And one of those things is your vows remind everybody else in the room of the vows they took. Hmm. It's not about your personal little whatever. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, what we're into here is something that God has established. Now, uh, that, that obviously shocks a lot of people, but I've never had anybody walk away. <laughs> but, it, 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 you know, obviously I am who I am. And if people don't like me, they wouldn't come to get married. <laughs> <laughs> they'd hit up the Unitarian church. But, no, yeah. They'd hit up the Unitarian yeah, church. I mean, it, you know, there's just, there's, there, we have plenty of warnings. <laughs> to, to sort of up. But uh, the, uh, but, but, what you, what you have is, you know, right there in, in Genesis with Adam and Eve, you know, all the, you know, the, the framework for marriage is right there in the creation story. And so human, human beings are not meant to live alone. Hmm. Uh, we're meant to live uh, in relationships and men are made for women and women are made for men. And the, uh, uh, the beautiful sort of fruit of that is the image of God being reproduced, literally reproduced with children. Hmm. So what we, what we see is, you know, the exercise of dominion, but also within the framework of marriage, we have an image of Christ in the church. Mm -hmm. And it's not like Paul made that up, you know, it's like not some kind of afterthought, like he was sitting around saying, how can I illustrate how important the church is or something like that? <laughs> That's sort of the goofy stuff that, you, you hear and you know it, 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 this is not like an optional thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> marriage is is a creation mandate but it's also a new creation mandate hmm. in other words it's it's through marriage that we not only exercise dominion in the world but we also see what the next world is like uh with christ in the church so that means the, the father and a husband has uh, responsibilities to God for how he treats his wife and children. And that a wife has responsibilities to God for how she relates to her husband and children, so on and so forth. So these things are established. This is not, you know, do whatever, you know, makes you happy, you know, that kind of nonsense. Yeah. I mean, because earlier you had, you had spoken about um, when the household is, is turned into just recreational I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, 
you know, some of the common catchphrases of our culture is like, you know, well, love is love. And, you know, I've seen all those those bumper stickers or those signs, you know, love is what makes a family. And it and, you know, it makes me makes me cringe a little bit because, well, actually, God defines what a family is and what a marriage is. And but but if if a person were to think that all that matters is their own personal feelings, then they can in their own world, they can redefine family to be whatever they want. You know, it's non-traditional family or it's a non-nuclear family um, there. But it definitely seems like at that point they are uh, rebelling, uh, you know, against uh, God's uh, uh, created order and the way that he has defined these terms. Is that a fair uh, summary there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, definitely, that's definitely the case. And, and uh, I think that this uh, this whole matter of marriage and biblical marriage is, um, you know, no matter no matter how nicey nice certain evangelicals try to play this, mm. this is the this is the point uh, at which we see uh, the rebellion, uh, uh, you know, uh, that that uh, um, in our time, in other words, uh, you know, sin and and rebellion how it's being played out in our time. It's a, it's at a, you know, it's at a foundational level. It's it's at the level of, um, it, um, this is this is a war upon the image of God, hmm. um, and it's intended to, uh, and I believe in demonic realities. I believe in the devil, so forth. Mm-hmm. There's there's something going on here that's that's. Uh, that makes people sterile and if it doesn't make them sterile it makes them uh it deforms them Hmm. or it deforms their offspring Hmm. and it's it's uh it's an offense uh and it's blasphemous Hmm. yeah no that's that i i I agree completely and that's a very important point that we need to certainly think about um and uh, there's a couple topics I do want to uh, I want to eventually circle back to the socialism piece because I think that is very much key in our culture uh, today. But first, I wanted to I mean because you'd mentioned uh, patriarchy and that you know seems to be a trigger word for a lot of uh, people in our culture today. Um, and I I was uh, uh, very much enjoying I, mean, I enjoyed all your book, but certainly in the, in, the, in the third part of your book, you you speak to kind of the uh, the ordering of the household and the importance of, of piety and justice and authority and gravitas. Um, and that certainly ties into, you know, the concept of patriarchy. You know, what what is a patriarch supposed to be doing? Um, so can you give a, 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 to our audience like a little a little glimpse of, of some of those things, such as authority, such as gravitas, and why those things are important, like how do we define those terms, first of all, and then why those things are important in the household in order to rebuild the household from where it's kind of crumbled to today? Sure. I mean, there are basically two ways to go about it. Um, one is from the ground up and the other is from, this, from, from heaven downward. Let me go from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So the word authority uh, if you look at it closely, you'll notice that it uh, uh, it, it contains the word author. Mm-hmm. Now that's not a mistake, and that's not a coincidence. 
So what happens is an authority is someone who is uh, bringing into being a kind of uh, uh, literary text, you could say. Um, it's the work of art. And anyone who is a creator has authority over his work. So when I, you know, I'm an, I'm a, I'm an artist, I'm an author. Uh, when I make something, I, uh, I have uh, some authority over it. Hmm. And I, I uh, you know, I'm not overreaching. I'm not arrogating authority to myself. It's, it's something that I am, you know, was instrumental in bringing about. And when it comes to a household, the father and the mother, uh, the husband and the wife, uh, bring into being an institution. And that institution is something that they work on and they, because it, it's an expression of them, you know, of their own lives and their own labors, it's something that they have authority over. When children are brought into that household, they, uh, they are under the authority of the, of the parents and uh, they, they actually owe uh, in some measure their very being to their parents. Obviously, uh, God is behind it all, uh, and God overrules it all hmm. and is the highest authority. But authority is something that is resonant in, in a household in the parents because by virtue of their offices, uh, father, mother, husband, wife. And then uh, within a household, if it's functional, if it's a functional household, there are things that need to happen in order for the people in the household to live and thrive and so forth. So, you know, in pre-modern times, in the pre-industrial age, you know, there were there were things that had to be done in order for people to eat. There had to be, there were things that had to be done in order for the household to have, you know, a, uh, a productive and honored place in the larger community. There were things that had to be done in order to serve uh, the the true author of all things, the author of life, God himself. There were all these things that were uh, obligatory uh, for households to, to, uh, to submit to, uh, but there were also just practical things. So let's, you know, one of the weird things today is because households aren't functional, mm -hmm. you know, the question uh, becomes, well, why should anybody do what dad says? I mean, what's dad in charge of what we watch on television? What's for dinner? Where we're going on vacation? You know, <laughs> what does that, what is, what are we, what are we doing here? We're just basically relaxing so that we can get ready to go somewhere and do something important in, that happens someplace else. But if, mm. if the household is functional, if the household is actually doing things that uh, are productive in nature and serve the interests of the members of the household, then the authority of the father and the mother uh, it doesn't require special pleading, if you know what I mean. So, mm -hmm. like when we go back to the farm, you know, if we go back to a, you know a pre-industrial household, and the father were to say to the son, to one of his sons, "Go out into the back forty and bring in those cows," and the son said, "No, I'm not going to do that," and he, the father would say, "Well, if you don't, you know, the the, the you know we're going to be in trouble because we need those cows to be from you know." point A to point B. And if you don't do it, then it's not going to get done because there are other people that are busy with other things. In other words, it's not a matter of, you know, do it because I say so. Hmm. The, what, it, what we have here is do it because it needs to be done. 
<laughs> and, and we make we, we do a lot of make work nonsense in households today. And kids know that uh, because they know that, you know, the chores that they're given don't really need to be done uh, kind of at a, you know, at a, a mm-hmm. deep intuitive level. They know that they don't have to be done. They're more inclined to grouse and to, and to sort of chafe at the authority of a father or a mother. But if they really understand this has to be done or we don't eat, then a lot of the nonsense goes away. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. like that a lot. I was like, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, you know, every now and then we'd have something for dinner. My mom would cook something and, uh, and I'd be like, mom, I don't, I don't want this. Like, can't we, can't we order a pizza or whatever? She's like, well, if you don't like it, don't eat it. You, just, you don't have to eat it. Go to bed. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, if you don't want to eat what we cooked, then you just go hungry. But it, but it sounds like it's that kind of tact, but taken kind of to a broader scale, right? Like that, that's an example that, you know, might resonate with a number of folks, you know, but, but what you're saying, it sounds like is, you know, take that concept of, okay, you have, you have to do something because it, it has to get done. And if it, if you don't do it, it's not going to get done and nobody else is going to step in and do it for you. Just like nobody else is going to come and cook you a special meal because you're special. It's like, mm. no, this is what the family's eating. You're going to eat what the family's eating. Or, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like an example comes to mind, like laundry, right? <laughs> All right. Well, you're not going to help us. I don't know, fold the clothes. You're not going to help us do this laundry, whatever. Well, you know, you, you might not have any clothes to wear, you know, or like, <laughs> like whatever. Right. But is that, is that kind of a, where you're coming from in this kind of taking that concept and expanding it to the different functions of the members of the household? Well, yeah, I mean, in all the things you just described are great. I mean, I have three grown kids and, uh, they're all very productive and, you know, throughout the course of their lives, they heard me, you know, talk about these things. They were all, uh, you know, uh, very aspirational. My two old, my two sons are both married. Uh, one was married at 24. The other was married at 22. Um, and they both, you know, all the, all three of my kids want to start their own businesses and want, mm. you know, to, you know, they're, they're, they're great kids. But one of the things that, that, uh, you know, was really, we really stressed with all of them was competency. Hmm. Um, they need to be, you need to be competent. You need hmm. to know how to do stuff. That's good. Um, hmm. so, you know, all of my kids can cook, all of my kids can take care of themselves. All of my kids can start a business. <laughs> they're, they, 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 they're all, they're all competent. And, um, a lot of it had to do with just kind of the way we operate. So let, let me give you an example of how this works. So at the center of a household is productive property. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the way that what, what that means, what productive property means, the difference between productive property and other forms of property is this productive property gives you a living. Other forms of property are just things that you possess, mm-hmm. like a toothbrush or your car or whatever. Uh, but productive property is something like a business, real estate, things of that nature. So, you know, I've, I've been a real estate investor since 1994. So I've had a lot of real estate over the years at one time. And this was even as I was, even when I was a pastor, as a pastor, I had 18 tenants. Hmm. And so when, uh, you know, things needed to be done with the apartments, uh, I would bring my kids along and my kids would work with me on the apartments. I never paid them. And the reason I didn't, I said, I would tell them this, I say this, this, you know, this apartment building is going to pay for your college. 
and it's also going to help fund your parents' retirement, and then you're going to inherit it. Get to work. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. And they did. No, that's. I mean, that's that's what a what a great lesson and a great like thing to teach kids. And I mean, I can just hear like how proud you are of your kids and like that that just really shines through. And I think that's awesome to be able to have instilled that competence. And you know, kind of along similar lines, you know, as we think about economics and productive property being kind of the focal point of the household, um, you know. How did it come to be that the household kind of no longer became the center of productive work? Like, you know, you talked, you gave a few examples about like farm life and kind of pre-industrial circumstances where, you know, maybe that was that was less the case. And now kind of post-industrial, you know, it was, you know, the the locus of work kind of found its way outside of the home. Um, But now, you know, in, in your book, one of the things that um, I think you, you talk about this a lot. You know, one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, what role technology might be playing in, in our current era for kind of enabling the home to be back at the center of production. You know, I think of, you know, some remote employment uh, situations, right? Like I have some some friends who I know, they just, they work remotely, they're, they're home. And kind of in, in that sense, the home can again become kind of a locus of, of um, productivity, economic productivity. So, I mean, any, any thoughts on that or kind of the impact that technology might have in facilitating, kind of regaining some of that? Well, yeah, I think we live in a very good time. I think that we're uh, poised to recover uh, the productive household. And, and it's because of technology, paradoxically. Now, in the industrial age, because the technology was crude and large and immobile, people had to come to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no argument with the fact that the division of labor uh, made us more productive and that, you know, factories, uh, you know, produced in greater abundance all the goods that we enjoy, you know, that are, you know, that that minister to our physical needs. You know, there's no, there's no argument with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I'm addressing is unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. And, uh, with those unintended consequences, uh, they've been uh, pretty significant, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But we we're in a time where the economy is becoming less centralized. Uh, it's 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 uh, being diffused and distributed again, uh, just through normal sort of economic processes. Uh, it's more, in other words, it's more uh, efficient and less expensive for you know, an employer for employees to work from home. Um, and because you can do that remotely with a number of different jobs, you know, we see more and more people mm-hmm. enjoying working from home. Um, so I think that the, the thing that the need, the sort of the next step that I think needs to occur is we need to, we need to develop new forms of, of property that can be held by households. Mm-hmm. So, even though people are working remotely, the productive property is still in the possession of the corporation. Yeah, outside the home. And so long as it is, uh, you're going to find people who are really, you know, kind of servile and proletarian. Hmm. Um, the word proletariat is a word that we often associate with communism, but we really shouldn't. Uh, proletariat is a term for a free person who ha- has no property. Hmm. And it was coined by the Romans. So 
it was just a designation. This is basically, you know, somebody who's who's not a slave but doesn't have any property and therefore must sort of work as a wage earner. But in in America, uh, prior to the industrial age, about ninety percent of Americans owned productive property. Hmm. Today, it's ten percent. Wow! Think about that. What does that do to the mindset of people when they know? longer control the means of their livelihood. Well, it makes them dependent. It makes them servile. It makes them the sort of people that Bernie Sanders can work with. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I'm glad you brought that back up because it's bringing me back to the topic, you know, that I want to touch on earlier about socialism. Um, you know, yeah, Bernie Sanders' popularity and, and, and the lurch, the lurch to uh, socialism that, that uh, many in the Democratic Party are, are going towards, and of course, many people in our country are buying into. Um, I'm always trying to wrestle as far as like the chicken and egg problem. Like, is is it that the government has been, or, or or folks like that have been trying to uh, 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 take power or authority out of the home, and they they just get whatever they can. Or has it been that fathers and households have essentially abdicated their authority, abdicated their role and responsibility, and basically the government is the only one left to pick up the pieces? You know, someone has to, you know, aside from letting everyone starve in the streets, like if, you know, if the household fails and doesn't do its job, then the only option seems to be, uh, from, from, the, from the perspective of many people in our culture, is well, the government has to come in and fix the problem. Or is it like a combination of both, you know, uh, a, a kind of a, a negative, aggressive, tyrannical government trying to get what it can, and at the same time, a household falling apart and the government picking up the pieces? What are your thoughts on that there? Oh, yeah, I think it's definitely both. Um, a great thinker on this subject is a fellow that I mentioned earlier named Robert Nisbet. Uh, Robert Nisbet was a uh, mm -hmm. sociologist and... Uh, he wrote um, Quest for Community. That's, that's, a, that's a fabulous book uh, that I think, um, you know, it, it can be, a, it's a bit of a challenging read. He taught at Columbia. He had, you know, was at Berkeley for a while, but he was a, he was a conservative thinker and his great fear was that America was sliding into socialism. And this is a guy who was writing in the fifties and sixties. And uh, so I think, that what you have with any institution, uh, you know, whatever institution you're in, you, you're you're looking to you know uh, prove you're important and valuable. Hmm. So what are the you know what what do government bureaucrats uh, do to prove that they're important? Well, I mean they uh, try to grow their institutions. Hmm. Um, they try to get larger budgets. They try to address more need. Um, you know that it, that's that's how they that's how they demonstrate year over year that they're doing their jobs. You know, mm -hmm. I think that uh, perhaps a better way for people to think about their work in the government is, uh, and then of course, you know, they would never buy this, but <laughs> the better way to think is I need to work myself out of a job. A healthy, mm -hmm. a healthy, uh, you know, uh, community is a community that needs less government <laughs> because everything is being done. Uh, at the lowest level possible, which means at the level of households and you know and, and neighborhoods and and stuff like that. Hmm. So, but so it's kind of a both and. 
And and part of the part of the uh, the formula is the corporate economy. Um, corporations uh, control most of the productive property in our society, mm-hmm. and we need to we need to uh, become lovers of um, direct ownership. So let, let me give you an example of how this works. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll talk to people about uh, uh, real estate investing. And, you know, what, what I often hear in response is, well, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to get a call in the middle of the night because someone's toilet's clogged. So I'd rather just buy, you know, you know, you know, a real estate investment trust, uh, stock, you know, sort of shares in that, let somebody else worry about that. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a number of there are a number of problems with that, but I've had about eighty tenants over the years, and I've never got a call in the middle of the night for a clogged toilet. <laughs> but <laughs> but what it but what it demonstrates is a kind of uh, fear uh, and incompetence uh, for dealing with practical problems that makes a person when you, when you are, when you're afraid of addressing practical problems on a personal basis, taking responsibility for them yourself, then that makes you, uh, that puts you at the mercy of people who can and do that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we have less competence. And one of the reasons why we have less ownership and, one of the reasons why people are servile and depend upon other people to tell them what to do and why we're ruled by experts in the managerial class. And I could go on. Hmm. Yeah, that's important. That, that's, that's, that really, that really is an important point there. Dylan, you had some thoughts on that? Well, I was just saying, I'm, I'm all about that. Like I, I, I love what you just said, right? It's, it's that taking responsibility, kind of leaning in. So I, I find this a lot like among people that I know, I won't say where, but I'll just say people I know. Right. <laughs> and they're like, you know, if you say, hey, there's such and such an issue, um, can you can you take care of this or can you help me take care of this? You know, you try to delegate to them, you know, blinders go up because it's like that's not my responsibility. I'm only looking at this one little thing and they're not they're not willing to like lean in and like learn a new skill, try a new thing, you know, step in, lean into it, own it. And then like say, you know, I've never owned a property, but I've never, you know, I've never done A, B or C. I've never gotten that call at two in the morning to fix a toilet. Well, lean into it, own it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of taking it back to the example that you just gave, Chris, but, but so I'm reading um, Extreme extreme Ownership right now by Jocko Willink, and he's kind of leaning into that same, that same kind of thesis. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So, and, and another thing that you said that just kind of jumped out at me was you were talking about, you know, we want to take this concept to the lowest level possible. And now when you said that, you mentioned like lowest level possible is households. And it struck me that you said households and not individuals. Hmm. Because like I feel like so often when people think about kind of that lowest level of maybe ownership or responsibility, we kind of tend to think uh, we, we jump right to individuals. Um, and I, I, I can't remember what article. I was just reading an article uh, recently that kind of made this analogous point where like like actually the the smallest uh, social unit is is not the individual, but the lowest social unit is not lowest hierarchically, but in terms of function is the household. And and that was really, really interesting to me too. Um, and, you know, so I guess one, one corollary of all of this is that, you know, so you have in your book a breakdown between kind of what's inside the household, the functional household, and then kind of what's outside of the functional household. And one of the categories that you talk through and that you think through, we've been talking a lot about inside, on the outside part 
is friendship. And this is interesting because we just had a couple of weeks ago um, a chap named David Smith on the podcast to similarly talk about friendship, and in particular, friendship among men. And I, I really appreciated that your book kind of dove in on that same topic for a little while, because it is, it's a, it's occasionally a neglected issue is friendship among men. And, you know, one of the things you say in um, your chapter on friendship, you say true friends, you know, when what binds friends is goodness, the friendship can last in good times and bad. And I just thought that was a really powerful quote. Can you talk maybe a little bit about for friendships? You know, maybe what are some of the categories of friendship? And, you know, why should friendship be important to, I mean, in particular, Christian men? Hmm. Yeah, friendship is based on a common good. This is Aristotelian. This is Aristotle, how he thought about friendship. We tend to think of friendship as sort of emotional intimacy. That mm -hmm. That is something that I think is a real distraction. So let's just bracket that and put it aside for a second. We think mm -hmm. about friendship as a common good. We can see that there are, there are different forms that friendship can take. So there's useful friends, pleasant friends, and true friends. And those are categories that Aristotle identified. Now, sometimes people have a problem with saying, well, you know, you know, how, why should I care about Aristotle and what he said? Well, because he was right. <laughs> Let's get over <laughs> this nonsense about, you know, if it's outside the Bible, it can't possibly have anything to teach us. No one in the early church thought that way. So what Aristotle said, what he observed is that, okay, there are goods that people have in common. So useful friends... Uh, are people who are of use to each other for some practical good. So if you think about it in that way, then an entire community, even made up of people who don't know each other very well, uh, is a community of friends. Because what they're doing is through their business interactions and through their, through their cooperation, through their working together at the, uh, you know, the, the volunteer fire department uh, or you know, the Little League, you know, all those different things, that what they're doing is they're pursuing a good, whether that good is putting out fires or promoting the economic, you know, well-being of the community or, you know, even the exchange of, of goods, like when you go and buy a lawnmower, you, you give the, you know, you give the, the business owner some money and, and then he gives you the lawnmower, you buy mm -hmm. that. It's a cooperative uh, venture in which you both uh, come away with some good and you have a common good, which was you know, sort of the exchange itself. So that's the lowest level of friendship, but it's a very, very important one. The next level of friendship is, is, is closer to what we normally think of friendship, and that's pleasant friends. Now, pleasant friends can also have a common good in the sense of something they do together, like maybe you like to ski or like to play golf or, or what have you, or maybe you just like to sit around and tell jokes with each other and hang out. Well, the, the, the good that you enjoy with that friend is the pleasant experience of the, of the common task or the dialogue or whatever. So those friends, uh, you know, are, uh, you know, fewer in number, um, because obviously you can only have so many pursuits that are dedicated to just pleasantry or pleasant uh, things. Um, but uh, you can uh, also discover that in those pleasant fr friendships that there are certain things you wouldn't go to those people for. In other words, I mean, they can be, uh, you know, people that you like to sit down and enjoy 
uh, an evening with or watching a football game with or mm -hmm. whatever, but you would never go to them and talk to about, you know, the trouble that you're having at work or, you know, uh, the difficulties that you're, you're having with your son or whatever. That, that kind of friendship is, it, that is able to handle that kind of stuff is true friendship. And true friends are friends who have virtue in common. So something uh, very, uh, you know, very good, uh, the highest kind of good that people can enjoy together is uh, enjoying the goodness of the friend. Now, obviously, as Christians, we know that we're all fallen and, and, and so forth. But with that understood, you could still say, you know, Bob is a good guy. I think, you know, I, I, he's the sort of guy that uh, I can talk to about anything. And uh, he cares about me. If I get sick, he'll come and visit me. If, you know, if he's sick, you know, I want to be the same kind of friend to him. You know, that's that's the the, the kind of friendship that can endure, uh, even when you can't really derive any other kind of good from friendship. Um, hmm. In other words, let's say when you're sick, uh, um, and you know nothing is pleasant, and there's nothing you can do for anybody that's useful. Hmm. Your true friend comes to see you, even so. You, you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because he's a virtuous person. He's a good person, made, you know, made so uh, by the grace of God. Hmm. Whether we're thinking about common grace or you know the grace that we know in Christ. So um, anyway, so th those are the forms of, that friendship can take, and uh, obviously. Uh, it's really important to have, you know, men as friends uh, in each of those categories because yeah. they make your life richer. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there was a <laughs> jokingly, there's a fourth category of useless friends that you want to try to get rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> I had a few of those growing up, some of my useless friends. But, but, but isn't it interesting you said, you you know, you had them. Yeah, no, yeah. They're, they're, they're not the sort of friends you hold on to. That's true. Uh, very true. Um, you know, I tell you, uh, Chris, our time goes by so fast. It's already We're already pushing an hour, and there's so many other topics that I'd love to uh, spend so much time on. But I do, uh, I do want to offer, like, do you, are there any final thoughts or final uh, advice or, or just anything else you wanted to say to our listeners about this topic of, of, of the you know, man of the house and households and things like that before we close? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wrote a couple of books about it. <laughs> <laughs> and if people want to get into the the subject uh, a deep, uh, at a deeper level, I, I, that's about all I can say is you can read those books. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're available wherever better books are sold, as they say. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, it's, it's it, there's a tremendous hunger for this kind of stuff. I, I am contacted, I'm not exaggerating, every day. Wow. From around the world on this stuff. And uh, I'm appalled that uh, that I'm like the only guy that I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm exaggerating a little bit. I know of a few other guys who, who are doing it. But, uh, but there's so few of us. Um, yeah. I'm going to be speaking at Iron Sharpens Iron. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. I it's am like, familiar. Like a men's conference ministry thing. So uh, they're starting to bring me into their their thing because they don't have anybody talking about this stuff either. And uh, anyway, looking forward to that. But uh, I could just ramble on forever, but I'll stop. 
<laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, well, honestly, I mean, uh, yeah, I appreciate all that you're doing on this topic. Uh, and certainly when I uh, finish reading uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, I mean, I'll be, you know, looking to maybe have you back on the show here and talk about that book, uh, you know, uh, inundate you with more questions uh, for our listeners. So uh, that'll be something that I look forward to. Um, but, uh, you know, with that, I mean, for those of you listening, uh, I appreciate you all tuning in. And if you have any questions for Dylan, myself, or, or Pastor Wiley, please please email us at, 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 sorry, you can go to our website at www.twoguysinabible.org, but email us at twoguysinabible.podcast at gmail.com, and we can certainly uh, forward any messages uh, to Pastor Wiley, and, and he might be able to respond back to you. But, uh, I mean, with that said, I hope that this has been a blessing uh, for those of you listening. It's certainly been a blessing for me. Uh, and again, uh, Chris, thank you for coming on tonight's show. Well, you're welcome. I, I enjoyed it very much. You know, if folks would like to learn a little more, you can always go to the, I've got a website, crwiley.com, and there's a link to our our podcast. It's called The Pugcast, as you said, and I have a couple of other hosts that are on that show that are great guys. And But anyway, uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, having me anyway. absolutely. And uh, like I said, yeah, I'll definitely commend to our listeners uh, your, your podcast and definitely uh, please uh, check out that website to get more uh, of what, uh, what Pastor Wiley's been doing. Um, so with that, uh, until next time, everyone, take care and God bless. God bless. God bless.